Welcome to In That Case. My name's Joel Townsend and you're listening to my podcast about public interest litigation which has shaped Australian life. I've spoken already to a number of terrific guests for this podcast. I spoke to kick off the podcast with Stephen Kime about the Muhammad Hanif case which occurred back in 2007 and I spoke also to Jason Kiwa and Michael Clothier about the case of Kiwa and West, a High Court case which has been profoundly impactful uh, when it comes to government decision making in Australia. Keen for you to subscribe on iTunes uh, if you have an interest. Also would love it if you put up a review, gave the podcast a rating on iTunes. I gather it helps people to find the podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at, at Townsend Joel C. That's at Townsend Joel C. I'll put in my Twitter feed uh, information about the podcast from time to time. So um, find me on Twitter and uh, you'll get updates as we go along. But I wanted to get into talking today about the case of Croom and Tasmania, which in the context of recent developments in Australia with the uh, legalisation of same-sex marriage is a really topical case. In the early 90s, up until the 1990s, uh, Tasmania had laws on the books which prohibited sexual intercourse between males and acts of gross indecency committed by a male with another male. So these were obviously laws which were targeted at and heavily impacted the um, gay community in Tassie and Rodney Croom was a key activist through the 80s and early 90s against these laws which had this discriminatory effect on that community. He'll talk a little bit about the background in the course of the podcast but uh, in substance Despite a lot of local campaigning, by the time he hit the early 90s, he took the view that it was going to be impossible without some outside leverage to persuade the Tasmanian parliament to legislate to get rid of these laws. And so he made a complaint, he and uh, Nick Toonan made a complaint to the United Nations Human Rights Committee. This is a committee which exists under an optional protocol to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. The International Covenant, the ICCPR, is a a treaty which Australia entered into and many other countries um, have also entered into, which deals with some of the basic human rights um, that we recognise as universal. So things like the right to privacy, the right to freedom from discrimination, freedom of speech rights, freedom of association rights, that sort of thing. And under the optional protocol, if a person is affected by the conduct of a state party to the uh, international covenant and there are no domestic remedies available to that person, that is there's no option through the ordinary court or other processes in the country uh, which is impacting the person, then that person can make 
a complaint to the Human Rights Committee, which is basically a panel of experts which looks at the uh, issues in question in the context of the covenant and provides an opinion about whether the conduct of the state party in question is in breach of the rights that are guaranteed by the ICCPR. So that's the um, process that Rodney Croom and Nick Turnan undertook. They made a complaint to the Human Rights Committee uh, about the fact that um, as gay men they were exposed to jeopardy under these laws and that that was a breach of their human rights. And the Human Rights Committee found that um, the laws in question breached uh, Rodney Croom and Nick Turnan's rights to freedom from discrimination and also breached um, privacy-related rights. The Human Rights Committee complaint was made in 1991 and in 1994 the Human Rights Committee handed down its opinion. And the same year the Commonwealth Parliament passed the Human Rights Sexual Conduct Act and it provided that, and I'm quoting here, sexual conduct involving only consenting adults acting in private is not to be subject by or under any law of the Commonwealth, a state or a territory to any arbitrary interference with privacy within the meaning of Article 17 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So the operation of this provision meant that Tasmania couldn't effectively enforce this law on consenting adults acting in private. But the law was still on the books and Rodney Croom took the view that it was inappropriate to have that law on the books, that it had an expressive effect. And as we'll hear, there were some real um, legal consequences, notwithstanding the existence of the Human Rights Sexual Conduct Act. There were some real legal consequences which could potentially arise from the operation of those Tasmanian laws. So uh, he took action in the High Court seeking uh, a declaration that the Tasmanian laws were inconsistent with the uh, Commonwealth law, the Human Rights Sexual Conduct Act. So Section 109 of Australia's Constitution provides that where there is a, an inconsistency between state and Commonwealth law, the Commonwealth law will prevail. The, the state law will be invalid to the extent of the inconsistency. And this seemed a pretty clear case of inconsistency between state and Commonwealth law. So Tasmania didn't really have a substantive defence on the question of inconsistency. And so when the matter came before the High Court, it took a procedural point. Courts are really concerned to make sure that they're not flooded with uh, applications from uh, members of the public for declaratory relief as to the applic application of the law. Courts don't want to be overwhelmed uh, by requests for what are in effect advisory opinions. 
And so there are a couple of doctrines that uh, the courts have developed to try and regulate the extent to which they're swamped by those sorts of um, those sorts of applications. And one of those is the doctrine of standing, which says that a person to bring a legal proceeding must have a sufficient interest in the subject matter of the proceeding. Uh, and the other is the constitutional doctrine that uh, courts have to deal with real controversies. It's not the job of the courts to opine in the abstract as to the operation of the law. It's the job of the courts to resolve real legal disputes. And so Tasmania argued two things uh, in Croom in Tasmania. They started out arguing that um, Rodney Croom did not have standing to take this action because uh, he was not likely to be prosecuted under the Tasmanian law. The, the uh, Tasmanian government later retreated from that position. They accepted that uh, Rodney Croom had standing, that he had a sufficient interest as somebody who had committed acts in the past which would be um, subject to prosecution if the law were um, ever sought to be enforced and that he was likely to commit such acts in future. And on that basis, Tasmania said, yes, we accept that Rodney Croom is somebody who has standing, has a sufficient interest to challenge the law. But they said that it, it didn't matter because in this case there was no real dispute because Tasmania was never going to enforce the law. Uh, and so there was no real quote-unquote matter for constitutional purposes in, uh, in, um, at issue here. And so therefore uh, the, the matter shouldn't proceed, they said, to judgment before the High Court. And there were six judges on the bench. Interestingly, uh, Justice Kirby had um, been involved early on in advising uh, Rodney Croom about what course to take to try to challenge Tasmania's laws, and so he recused himself from this proceeding. But all six judges found that, um, unsurprisingly, that Rodney Croom had standing and also that there was a real matter, a real dispute to be had here, and um, that that the um, the litigation could proceed. So the Chief Justice, um, Chief Justice Brennan, and Justices Dawson and Tui found that there was no dispute that Rodney Croom had had standing, and that the the matter at issue here was not actually a dispute about whether or not Rodney Croom was liable to prosecution but whether there was an inconsistency between state and Commonwealth laws. And because of the correct concession by Tasmania that um, Rodney Croom had standing because his past conduct meant he was exposed to potential prosecution under the laws, he had a sufficient interest in that live matter being the question of the uh, degree to which the state laws, the Tasmanian laws, and the Commonwealth law, the Human Rights uh, Sexual Conduct Act, were inconsistent. Uh, the other three judges were um, Justices Gordon, McHugh, and Gummo, and they wrote a separate um, uh, joint judgment 
And they said, look, it is conceptually awkward to try to sever these standing and matter issues. If you're saying someone's got um, a standing to challenge a particular law, but that there's not a matter, not a live dispute about whether the law uh, is valid, that's, um, that's a conceptually awkward argument to put. They said that um, the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions in Tasmania, had not said that no offences um, that had been committed under the Tasmanian laws in the past uh, would ever be prosecuted, nor did they say that there would be no prosecution of um, these uh, offences in future. And so they said, look, uh, there's a matter here, uh, again, accepted that Rodney Cream had standing. And so the upshot of that was that there was really no dispute that uh, once it was clear Rodney Croom could proceed with litigation, there was really no dispute that this was an instance of inconsistent laws and the Tasmanian laws had to fall away. And ultimately, they were taken off the books. So this is a case which is pretty technical in terms of the procedural uh, footing on which the litigation proceed, proceeded, but it obviously has real contemporary relevance on, through on a couple of um, on a couple of bases. First of all, LGBTI rights are a live issue, of course, and we are uh, on our way to realising um, the full recognition of the rights of LGBTI people in Australia. But this was one step along that journey. And the other thing is that we have here an instance of international human rights being given real recognition in domestic Australian law. And in the years since, on many occasions, Australia's been to the Human Rights Committee and the Human Rights Committee has opined about the validity or otherwise of Australian laws. And those views of the Human Rights Committee have not been given much deference by the Australian government. And this is a really striking instance of of some deference being given. So really relevant, I think Rodney Croom is um, very well spoken, obviously a storied activist for LGBTI rights in Australia and I hope that you enjoy uh, hearing a bit about his case. I started as I usually do by um, asking him to talk a little about the background. What was the background? What led you into involvement with this litigation? When I look back on the litigation before the High Court that had my name on it, uh, it's only one part of a much bigger story, uh, and that story is the story of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Tasmania. And I was at uh, one of the people at the forefront of that campaign. Um, and the High Court case was just one more step towards achieving that reform. Um, beginning in 1988, when we uh, went public with our campaign and were almost immediately met with uh, overwhelming resistance, <laughs> first by the Hobart City Council that banned our stall at Salamanca Market uh, and sparking 130 arrests, including me being arrested four times. Um, 
uh, and mass protests against that, which saw our stall uh, finally granted to us, including the, the very big, rowdy, angry anti-gay rallies that occurred in Tasmania the following year and the year after that um, against the then minority Labor government's move to try and repeal those laws. The angry resistance of the upper house to repeal our decision in response to that angry resistance to um, to go to the UN Human Rights Committee to be the first case from Australia under the first optional protocol uh, to to Geneva, um, and uh, the fact that two and a half years later we we won that case, uh, and the federal government decision to act on that on that um, on that win on that ruling bypassing the uh, human rights sexual conduct act the human rights sexual conduct act which passed in 1994 a few months after the uh, human rights committee's decision um, was not all we had hoped it would be uh, it set it, 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 it entrenched in legislation the right to sexual privacy for all adult Australians. <clears throat> but um, the way it was structured, it only really created a defence in court should the Tasmanian, uh, Tasmanian police arrest anyone under the uh, Tasmanian law, the law which criminalised all consenting sexual contact between men in private. Uh, and that wasn't enough. We wanted those laws gone. Um, and uh, so the decision was taken to um, ask the High Court to strike down the Tasmanian laws, to do, or to be more accurate, to declare them invalid uh, because they were in a direct contradiction with the Human Rights Sexual Conduct Act. Um, like I said, the... the the fact that the federal parliament had passed that act didn't in and of itself set up a direct um, uh, contradiction. I'm now I'm not using the right word there. It's not contradiction. It's um, inconsistency. Yes. Um, it didn't set up a direct inconsistency. Uh, the Tasmania, it, all it did was, like I said, establish a defense for us should we be arrested. And the Tasmanian government was very aware of that too. Uh, and Tasmanian government officials made it clear uh, after the Human Rights Sexual Conduct Act was passed that in their eyes nothing had changed. That the Tasmanian law was still on the books, it was still active, it still, to quote uh, one Tasmanian government minister, it still had an educative value. That means educating people that homosexuality is awful, sinful and criminal. Um, and... Uh, Yes, we, we knew that the Human Rights Sexual Conduct Act in and of itself wasn't enough. Now, certainly the legal advice we received, it was certainly the message we got from the state government. And it's what we saw every day in Tasmanian government policy. Um, that law was still being used to justify a discriminatory policies uh, in areas like policing and education and health uh, across a whole range of Tasmanian state government policy areas against LGBTI people. Mm. So on that basis, uh, we decided to get a declaration from the court that there was this direct this inconsistency, and that was the origin of um, Croom versus Tasmania. Mm.
Tanzania and Tasmania. And I was very frustrated with that. Uh, I don't think they wanted to upset the state government. Um, in the end, the lawyers who agreed to take on the case were in Victoria, um, including Alan Goldberg. Of course, he was the QC. He was the lead, the, the senior barrister. Um, Chris Walker, who was uh, then an academic at Melbourne University. She's now a QC, I think, or AC. Um, she was a junior barrister. Um, and uh, once we'd secured their, their help, we went off to the court. Um, like I said, I, I think I, I always regret that we didn't act sooner, but we, I think, had a naive, we were naively optimistic about the support we would get in the Tasmanian legal fraternity from legal aid and from various barristers here. The advice we got that the, was that the real barrier would be admissibility. Um, because um, I and others hadn't been arrested under the laws. Um, but the same issue had come up with the UN Human Rights Committee. People, including Michael Kirby, warned, that, uh, warned us that our case wouldn't be found admissible because no one had been arrested uh, for quite a few years in Tasmania, not since the 80s. Um, and our response to him and our case to the Human Rights Committee was that even in the absence of arrests, those old laws still, those old criminal laws still um, stigmatised the LGBTI community and, like I said before, created uh, a climate of fear and repression um, and were directly used by the Tasmanian government to justify discrimination in public policy. To give you some examples of that, I'm talking about uh, the Education Department, where the Secretary of the Education Department used the laws to justify uh, a memorandum to schools saying that there should be no discussion of homosexuality in schools, no posters, no books, nothing. Uh, not even counselling. If if, if students approach teachers or counsellors to talk about being gay, the teachers and counsellors weren't to talk to them. It was it was quite cruel. Um, it was the same with the state government's family council. There were to be no LGBTI community members on that because um, of the laws. Uh, it was the same in health policy. There was no LGBTI health policies in Tasmania at all because of the laws. And of course, we were able to cite quite a few examples of Tasmanian government, Tasmanian officials and community leaders who had vilified the LGBTI community to quite an extraordinary degree on the basis that it's been gave us against the law. Um, and uh, just as, as that had uh, secured its admissibility before the Human Rights Committee, uh, I think it also uh, helped us gain access to the High Court. High Court case and to see the way in which there were these um, different impacts of the law which you articulated in your affidavit material and you've talked about those, you've talked about not just the potential exposure to criminal prosecution but the sort of expressive effect of law. One thing that I hadn't thought about until I 
read the case is that, of course, there are kind of collateral legal effects of this kind of criminalisation. So there's talk about the fact that um, some leases uh, prohibit the use of premises for illegal conduct. And so you um, decriminalise, uh, unless you decriminalise um, uh, gay sex, then what you do is you expose um, people in same-sex relationships to a greater risk of homelessness. And it's interesting just the, the the range of ways in which this law interacted with other laws and policies to have, as you say, that flow-on discriminatory effect. Yeah, that's a very direct impact, as as was the um, situation for those people who did, you know, had police checks and uh, for for jobs with, um, say, with children or or whatever it might be, and and had to admit to any criminal activity. Um, you know, if they'd been engaged in criminal activity, they had to say, and any sex between men was a criminal activity. So uh, people were put in jeopardy in terms of their employment, in terms of their housing. Um, but it, like I said before, there's also the impact on uh, public policy more broadly, including um, other law reforms. Now, Tasmania was the last state, for example, to uh, enact anti-discrimination legislation. Our Anti-Discrimination Act is the best in the country, which is great. But the reason we were last is because we criminalised homosexuality and, the, and uh, government officials throughout the 1990s made that quite clear. They said, we, we cannot legislate to um, prevent discrimination against homosexuals at the same time as we're criminalising homosexuality. I mean, you could say that that's a silly excuse. <laughs> it probably was a silly excuse, but it still, it was their excuse. Um, and it made sense enough to enough people for uh, legislation to prevent discrimination not being enacted in Tasmania until 1999. And 98, just after the decriminalisation. Uh, so there was, um, it was, the, the criminal laws um, that I took to the High Court uh, didn't stand alone. They were part of a, of a much, they were at the centre of a, of, a, of a web, if you like, of repressive attitudes and, and policies and laws uh, in Tasmania uh, that only began to be dismantled after, after they were repealed. Um, and they certainly weren't dismantled. They remained in place, that web of, of repressive attitudes and laws and policies remained in place after the passage of the Human Rights Sexual Conduct Act in 1994. Passage of that act wasn't enough change anything uh, the court had to be asked to find uh, that there was inconsistency um, that was the crucial step how he'd come to know Alan Goldberg and draft him in to running the case in the High Court? I first got in contact with him when, um, uh, obviously several months before that, when I addressed uh, a meeting at Liberty Victoria. It used to be the Council for Civil Liberties in Victoria and it changed its name to Liberty Victoria. Um, 
and he was there, and I talked about the Tasmanian situation. I talked about you know this this litigation that we wanted to take, and he instantly understood the importance of it um, and the deficiencies in the Human Rights Sexual Conduct Act, uh, and volunteered his his help, which was great. felt real personal impacts from his involvement in this litigation. I remember attending with Nick Toonan the, um, uh, a direction hearing uh, in Hobart uh, after the case was lodged, um, at which the Solicitor General appeared. That was, that was Bill Bale. Um, I think that's BAOE, uh, and being quite shocked and angry about some of the things that Tasmanian that he was saying on behalf of the Tasmanian government about the the importance of this law for educating people and, like I said, you know, the educative value of having these laws which criminalised us, um, the uh, and you know the importance of of people knowing that it's wrong, it's immoral to be gay and that the Tasmanian bridge didn't conform to Tasmanian values and all this kind of stuff. Um, I, I was quite angry about that. Uh, I didn't feel that it strengthened their case at all. It just sounded like um, him echoing the views of, 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 of hateful legislators um, or government members, I should say, because he was representing the government. Uh, in Canberra, it felt different. Uh, I did. I did attend the hearing in Canberra. Uh, I can remember the evening before the hearing. Um, we all convened to talk about what you know the, what would happen the next day. Uh, under we convened in, under um, um, Alan Goldberg's sort of uh, direction. He, he was directing people about what they should do, telling people, you know, you, you need to do this, you need to research that, you need to get out, make sure you bring this. And um, he was like, a, he was a very efficient field commander. Um, and at the end, I asked him, what, what will I do? And he, and he turned to me and he said, you just keep on breaking the law. It's a bit hard for me to disentangle the vitriol against us and me. Uh, uh, specifically in relation to the court case and in relation to the issue in general. Because, uh, like I said, there was a lot of vitriol um, from high-up officials and legislators and senior churchmen and various folk. of Croom in Tasmania in the context of the wider campaign about LGBTI rights and particularly a decriminalisation of gay sex in Tasmania. Uh, once, of course, the court accepted the case, then um, it was clear that it was, it was very likely that they would find that the two laws were inconsistent. Um, the argument about inconsistency was one that the Tasmanian government really didn't have hope on. <laughs> um, it, 
it put its hopes on the fact that we wouldn't be uh, admitted to the court. Um, and when it lost that, when it lost on that issue, and it was clear that it was going to lose on the merits as well, then uh, that was the final. At that point began the 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 final lap, if you like, of the of the decriminalisation debate. Um, the government, seeing that the game was up, allowed a conscience vote amongst its members. The Liberal government. It was in minority. The Greens had the balance of power. They introduced legislation. Labor supported it, of course. As did as did uh, uh, some members of the Liberal Party. Um, of course, all along the, the obstacle had been the upper house, uh, which in Tasmania is traditionally pretty conservative. Um, the liberal members of the upper house were told in no uncertain terms <laughs> that they should get this through, um, and they did. Uh, it passed uh, in May 1997. Uh, on May the 1st, 1997, on one vote. There was a one-vote margin. It's, for me, impossible to understand this case unless you see it in a broader context of that decade-long debate for, uh, about decriminalisation, how Tasmania uh, went from being the last state to have these old laws, laws that were some the worst in the Western world in terms of their... Of their um, the scope and the, and the punishment, the maximum punishment of 21 years in prison, um, went from having those laws and a very repressive legal and, and official ad, uh, attitude to, to sexual diversity to after decriminalisation, having some of the best anti-discrimination relationship laws and also some of the best public policies in policing, health and, and education in Australia. Um, and obviously the High Court case that we're talking about was a pivotal step along that path. But only one step. The, the, the decriminalisation, which the High Court case was a part of, was quite transformative. It did actually dismantle all of that web of repression and discrimination um, to quite an extraordinary degree. Um, we've seen none of the official homophobia since then that we saw before. The official vilification, yeah, vilification by by government officials or by community leaders of LGBTI people. That stopped, it literally stopped the day that law was changed. Um, like I said, the Anti-Discrimination Act was enacted just a few months after that. Our Relationships Act, which was included the first civil partnership scheme in Australia, was just a few years after that, um, four, uh, four years. Uh, the uh, better relationships with the police, health uh, health agent, health department, education department, uh, you know, work in schools to address LGBTI bullying, all that kind of stuff started almost immediately after the law was changed in 97. All of the liaison groups that exist with government, and Tasmania has more of them than any other state, they all started straight after that. It was a genuinely and profound, uh, genuinely a transformative moment and quite a profound one. And I'm really hoping that uh, the achievement of marriage equality will be the same for the nation as a whole. Because the fact that we uh, have that exclusion in the Marriage Act explicitly there, I believe in a similar way has become the center of a web of repression and discrimination. 
the, the federal government, if you look at what the federal government does for LGBTI people, there's virtually nothing. There's no formal liaison with any government departments. They're not interested in what we think at all. There's no consultation or, 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 or liaison or, or anything like that at a formal level in health or education or, um, or with the federal police or, or immigration or any, or any of those. Uh, in, in some, in the other, in this, at the state level, there is, like I said, in Tasmania, there is, and in Victoria and New South Wales and other states, it takes different forms. Uh, there's committees, there's roundtables, there's all this kind of stuff. But to, at a federal level, nothing. Um, and I think marriage equality will be a breakthrough moment in terms of our a better relationship between the federal government, regardless of the party that's in and the LGBTI community. Um, and it'll be a breakthrough moment culturally as well. It'll, I think, to quite an extraordinary degree, see the uh, end of some of the hateful and repressive attitudes that are, that are bubbling up in Australia right now. including the involvement of Alan Goldberg, who's since died. Yes, so I was involved in putting together a case against the Postal Survey, and Ron Merkel was uh, the senior counsel. Um, And uh, uh, one one evening after we'd been in the court uh, on that case, he, he... I was the last one left in his office. Everyone else had gone, and he turned to me and he said, um, "He told me that about Alan Goldberg's um, how he died. I knew I'd, I'd read that he that he had passed away. Um, and was sad about that. And and Ron Merkel told me about his death and and said that uh, Alan had said to him um, that one of the things he was most proud of doing was the." Uh, case that I was involved in against the Tasmanian law. Uh, one of the things he felt was most worthwhile uh, and that he was proud uh, to contribute to. Um, and that was, a, that was a really lovely thing of Ron to say. And um, uh, uh, yeah, it was wonderful to know that he, he thought that that was important because it was certainly important to many other people. I always will feel a little sad that uh, my name is on a case in which I am pitted against Tasmania. Um, Croom versus Tasmania. So that case needed to be taken. Uh, Nick Turnan, who's my partner then, had taken the case to the UN and, and we decided that I'd take the case to uh, uh, to to Canberra, to the High Court. Um, but it, I guess I'm a little sad because it gives a false impression about what we, what, what our motives were and what our campaign to decriminalise homosexuality was all about. Um, it wasn't about being against Tasmania. It was about being against those laws. And it was about, in fact, it was about being for Tasmania. Um, about 
wanting more than anything else to see Tasmania be the open, tolerant, inclusive place we knew that it could be, um, and which it became after those laws were changed. Uh, so, yeah, if if <laughs> uh, in a, in a perfect world, I guess I'd like to see that case redubbed Croom for Tasmania, <laughs> rather than Croom uh, versus Tasmania. Um, because Tasmania was never the in our in our eyes, Tasmania was never the hate and the vitriol and the discrimination that we'd seen and experienced directly. That wasn't the real Tasmania. The real Tasmania is a far better place than that. Wonderful and so appropriate to end. In that case for 2017 with a conversation with Rodney Croom about Croom and Tasmania. Great that he situated that case in the context of the longer history of the gay rights movement in Australia. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I hope you enjoyed the earlier episodes with Stephen Kime and with Jason Keogh and Michael Clothier. I really appreciate reviews, ratings on iTunes any feedback or suggestions you might have, you can find the podcast at www.inthatcasepodcast.com and you can find me on Twitter at, at Townsend Joel C. Looking forward to bringing you some more episodes next year. Mm-hmm.